I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts where we look at trying to get the world back into balance between financial capital and natural capital. Well, today's episode is called Chain Reactions, and I suppose uh, we might all have a different idea of what that means. I mean, I might think of a chainsaw. Other people might think of uh, supply chains, and some others might think of uh, the song by Diana Ross. Well, in fact, what I want to talk about is, in fact, supply chain, where our food comes from and how it affects nature. This is a big story. We've got billions of people to feed in the world. And yet, surprisingly, over half of all our food is just supplied by three things, wheat, rice and maize. Uh, but of course, we eat lots and lots of other things. And the way we produce our food obviously affects nature. I thought we'd have a little story and a conversation about that. I thought I'd start with um, caterpillars on a stick. How many of you have had caterpillars on a stick uh, before? But I was going down a river in the Amazon uh, a number of years ago, and we pulled up on the side of the river. There was a market there. We scrambled up the bank from this river. As soon as I walked into the market, the first thing I was offered was not a stick of candy floss. It was a stick of five enormous caterpillars on a stick. These caterpillars, they roast them in an oven and, and, and then cover them up in some rather delicious sauce. It was a dollar for five on a stick. So, you know, you've got to have that, haven't you? So I tried that. You don't eat the head. That's a bit too crunchy. But the rest of it is not that much different from eating a prawn, if you think about it, because a prawn is like, well, it's a caterpillar in the sea, isn't it? It's got a fleshy bit with a shell on it. And caterpillars are a bit like that. So they're delicious actually full of really good protein. But we probably are not going to feed the whole world just yet on caterpillars. One of the big problems that's happened in the Amazon, of course, in this story of chain reaction is the use of the chainsaw to cut down the forests, create land to grow the food that we all use. I just want to take you back to one of the biggest environmental battles that I was involved in in my life back in 1988, which also involved chainsaws as part of my story of chain reaction. I want to take you to an island off the west coast of Canada. It's called Vancouver Island. You might know Vancouver. It's a great place to go skiing if you like getting up in the, in the mountains there. But offshore, there's a big island, and it's called Vancouver Island. When I went there in 1988, you can drive along these roads, uh, snaking through the mountains. There are forests on either side of the road. And you think, God, this is a beautiful place. It's got these magnificent mountains and all these forests. Really good, huge, giant redwood forests going up a couple hundred feet on either side of the road. And I stopped. So I wanted to have a break on this long drive. I was going up the northern tip of the island, a place called Tofino. And I decided to take a break and walk in the forest. So I got out of the car and set off into the forest. Do you know what? I'd only gone about 50 metres when in the dark forest I started to see daylight. And I walked through the forest and it suddenly opened out into this vast open vista of destruction. There were tree stumps as far as I could see, rolling hills with just tree stumps. The whole drive was a com. On either side of the road, they'd left a barrier of forest to make you think 
it was all forests. But actually, on either side of the road, the forests are all gone. They've been cut down by the Canadian logging industry, which, of course, in the 1980s was absolutely massive. You might remember, you know, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. Da -da 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 well, you know, lumberjacking was a thing to be very proud of uh, way back. Uh, and uh, Monty Python made a, a real joke of it. But it has actually been responsible for some of the most uh, awful destruction of forests that I certainly I've ever seen. It was worse than anything I'd ever seen in the rainforest. I was amazed. But what was going on in Vancouver Island at that time was a big fight because there were 96 watersheds in Vancouver Island. 96 watersheds had been logged, something like that. There was only about four left that hadn't had any logging. And one of these was in the Kamana Valley, which was a beautiful valley up in the northern end of Vancouver Island. And I was on a journey there. I'd been invited to go out there by some friends of mine who were battling to save these trees. Because guess what? In the northern end, the top end of the Kamana Valley, it's a big valley, were the tallest trees left in the whole of Vancouver Island. These are huge, giant redwoods. These things are going to be 200 feet high or more, even up to, I think, almost 300 feet, so that's 80, 90 meters. And they're vast at the bottom and covered in moss. These are like prehistoric forests you can't imagine, beautiful to walk through. But a company called Macmillan Blodell wanted to go in and cut the tallest trees left on Vancouver Island. And it became like a lightning rod. There was something called the Western Canada Wilderness Committee who got together and said, we can't allow this to happen. And way back in Panama, I'd, years ago, I'd been building the first walkways up in the rainforest roof down on the Darien Gap on the Caribbean side of Panama. And there was a young Canadian who came down there and another filming guy called Alan Bibby who was making a film about all this. Well, this guy ended up back in Canada, and he'd learnt how to build platforms up in the rainforest roof uh, from our team down in the Darien. And he said, Andrew, come out. We're, we're building these platforms in these tallest trees in the Kamana Valley to highlight the fact. We've, we've created a research station high up in these trees. You should come and have a look. And we're trying to, to stop people from cutting them down. Well, this was really difficult because they had a legal right to cut these trees down, but it was just morally wrong. So they asked me to come out and sort of write about it and stuff. So I ended up at the base of one of these trees with a guy called Carrot. And he had a carrot-colored Mohican haircut. And he stuck me in a harness and pulled me up into this tree. 210 feet high was the highest I got. I climb up and then we had to climb on ladders up to another platform, another set of ladders up to another platform, another set of ladders. And eventually I could stick my head out through the trees and look out over the vast Kamana Valley. It was an incredible experience, utterly terrifying, but I've never forgotten it. Well, I got down after that, and uh, a few weeks before, the Macmillan Bloedel helicopters had been buzzing the site, trying to terrorize the people who were building these platforms. We got down, walked out of the forest. A week later, some heavies came in with their chainsaws and cut down all the ropes, that we built to create this sort of tree st uh, research station in the sky, and they cut down all the boardwalks that we've made. And this was then publicized, that this awful thing had happened. It, it, it ignited a massive environmental campaign, which, to cut a long story short, the giant trees of, 
uh, the Kamana Valley are still there today. The logging company was seen off. But then they shifted to another place further up the coast called Clearcut Sound, which is much bigger, a huge sound. If you've ever been to Tofino, where they've got Indian totem poles and a load of poets all living there, looking out over Clearcut Sound, and you can see the humpback whales just coming through the breaks there, through the water. And on the other side was Clearcut Sound, this massive sound and massive forest. Well, they wanted to cut that down too. And in 1993, there was a blockade, a huge blockade, Indian uh, people, Canadian Indigenous peoples, First Nations people all gathered. They chained themselves to the bulldozers, environmentalists, the whole works, the press, everything. Again, defeated. These were great moments in the environmental movement to try and protect nature, some of the earliest things. The result today is that Clarecourt Sound is still forested. Macmillan Bodell went bust and is gone, bought up with the remains of it by Weyerhaeuser, another huge logging company. Now, logging hasn't stopped in Canada. Uh, we need wood. It creates jobs, but it's done in a much more sustainable way, perhaps, than was going on in those days. But of course, you know, logging doesn't just go on in Canada. Uh, it's something that was happening in the Amazon as well. And you've got to think about the financial flows that are going into these major companies. Because of what happened in Kamana and Clearcut Sound, these businesses became non-viable. People started to lose a lot of money. They went bust. And so the investors started to get much more cagey about where they were putting their money. This led to a kind of chain reaction uh, that has today resulted in deforestation still happening massively around the world because the demand for hardwoods is huge. But the finance industry has become much, much more sensitized to good and bad logging and good and bad supply chains. And I think we're at the beginning of something really big in changing all that, but it ain't easy. So I'm going to take you through that. We're going to canter through a number of decades pretty quickly. So hang on to your hats. So let's jump forward to 2005. 2005 was peak deforestation in the Amazon. It had started in the 80s and spread like a cancer from the, the Atlantic coast of the Amazon all the way through places like Mato Grosso, and the big states there are the Amazon states, huge deforestation going on, massive burning. We reached about peak deforestation in this chain reaction around about 2005. Well, why was it happening? If you go to East Africa, and Africa sort of has the big five, doesn't it? The lions, elephants, leopards, rhinos, and buffaloes. In the old days, hunters used to be really proud of themselves they've managed to bag one of each. That was the thing. You went out there to get your big five. Well, what's the Amazon got? Well, I'd say the Amazon's got the big four. And these are the big four things that we need to bag if we're going to stop the destruction of rainforests. And what they are is beef, soya, and in Asia, because we're talking about deforestation, actually, rather than the Amazon. So you've got palm oil, and paper and pulp. Those are the big four that actually we need to bag if we're going to save life on Earth on our planet. There's a couple of tiddly ones as well called cocoa and coffee. They're coming up behind. But those big four are responsible globally for around about 60 to 70 percent of all the destruction of biodiversity on the planet. Beef, soy, palm oil, paper and pulp. And we all use it. It's not a blame game. We, the consumers, are driving this whole process because we buy this stuff. We buy beef to eat. 
we soya goes into chickens, pigs, cows all over the world. Palm oil goes into soaps and shampoos we use every day in the shower, or cakes and cookies you might buy in the supermarket. We all use paper and pulp. It, it's just because there are a lot of us and there's consumer demand. And the blame game doesn't really get us anywhere. So how are we going to deal with the big four in our chain reaction? So I'm going to just run through three things that have been tried over the last few decades. One is corporates, uh, the other is finance, and the other is campaigns. Let's have a, a little look at this. Well, what happened uh, in 2005 is that it was a massive outcry about deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, lots of environmentalists tried to stop it, and the Brazilian government sort of got the message. So they put in a massive satellite detection system called DETER and DETEX. Uh, and they started a spy in the sky program. They could spot who was deforesting and who wasn't. They could spot the big uh, slaughterhouses that were responsible for taking in cattle that were linked to deforestation. So what do we mean by that? Well, the front line of deforestation in the Amazon is cows. Four people running a few cows, quite a lot of them, actually, only one or two cows per hectare. So you cut down the forest, you put the cows on it. The soil's good for two or three years. You can get a lot of cows and then you can sell the beef. That goes on for two or three years. Then you move further into the jungle because the soil's no good anymore. What do you do with the old soil? You flog it to the soy barons. The soy barons are big guys working in the big cities. They come in with bulldozers, clear out all the last tree stumps, turn it into a prairie like the American prairie, and they make good money because there's a huge global demand for soy. They get fertilizer in and you can get a lot off the land so it lasts longer. So they feed all that soy into chicken making factories in the Amazon or they ship it in big ships all around the world to China and Europe to feed our chicken, pigs and cows. Uh, what was going on in Asia? We all know about that. Converting rainforest to palm oil, very successful industry. Palm oil demand going up, up, up around the world. Paper and pulp and logging. Actually, it doesn't cause the wholesale destruction of forests. Back in the 80s, everybody was very upset about logging, and uh, it was bad. But if you do sustainable logging and you only pick out the best trees and leave the rest, that's a whole lot better than the soya guys who come in and clear out everything. So you just got something that looks like you know blades of grass and a few, a few bushes on it, which is what soy looks like. So all that's been going on massively. The satellite systems help to reduce it. But then the corporates were getting a lot of flack from campaigners like Greenpeace who were attacking them, quite rightly, and said, look, you've got to clean up your supply chains. You need to find out whether you're destroying rainforests in your supply chains that you're selling us stuff. You know, we don't want all that in there. So uh, something called the Consumer Goods Forum did something rather remarkable. We're getting quite up to date now. It was only about five years ago. But they, their board came together. You know, they've got some really big companies in the Consumer Goods Forum, Walmart, massive suppliers of goods to the world. And the Consumer Goods Forum had about 400 companies in it. They did something extraordinary. They said, we're committing to have zero deforestation in our supply chains by 2020. That was a really bold, brilliant idea. Uh, Around about that time, too, we had something called the New York Declaration on Forests, which gathered together governments, companies, civil society, loads of people, all that signed this declaration. We're going to stop deforestation. And it became a really big global thing. 
But the really interesting was the corporates signed up to this. Big companies like Unilever said, you know, we're really going to do this. And there was a wonderful guy, actually, the CEO of Unilever then was called Paul Polman. And well, I, I happened to get involved with Prince Charles because he asked me to be an advisor to him on rainforests. And uh, Prince Charles and I and a bunch of others, we set up something called Prince's Rainforest Project. I said, so you've got to create something like a sense of emergency. It's all going too slow. So we created the Prince's Rainforest Project. Uh, and, the, and the Prince of Wales was absolutely brilliant at ringing up heads of state and heads of major companies and said, you know, rainforests are really important. Nobody really done that before to them. And he was completely brilliant at raising awareness and creating an emergency package for rainforests. So all this was going on in the build-up to this great pledge from all these companies. Well, here we are in 2020. So what's happened to the supply chains? Well, guess what? They haven't done it. They haven't been able to do it. It's turned out to be, well, depending on which side of the coin you sit. If you're Greenpeace, you say they didn't try hard enough. If uh, they were the companies, they would say it turned out to be really, really difficult. Uh, because if you're a big company like Unilever, you've got supply chains that go out like a spider's web all over the world. You can't believe the number of products a huge multinational produces for all of us. We enjoy them. Have a look and see how many products you use every day. I mean, there's literally a billion of them that are used by people all over the world. Uh, I think it's something like a billion people a day using Unilever products, something like that. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And you can see that little U on those products. So to make sure that none of those are destroying the rainforest is a journey that begins with a shampoo bottle and ends up with a poor farmer in a rainforest in New Guinea. Can you imagine how hard it is to know every single step all the way down? So if you're trying to get palm oil that's safe, not destroying the rainforest, you can go from London all the way down to a big palm oil mill. That's the place where all the bunches of these palm oil fruits comes in and is squashed up and they squeeze all the palm oil out of it. And then it gets put in super tankers that drive all the way to Rotterdam or somewhere like that. And it gets disgorged in Europe and turned into all the things we use with a sort of palm oil refineries and things. It's an incredible business. But you get down to the mill. Well, the people who are supplying the mill, around about 50% of that stuff is uh, from well-managed plantations that you, you, you can speak to the manager, you know roughly what's going on. But about 50% is coming from lots of small farmers who's trying to make a buck to feed their families and educate their children. And, you know, you talk to sustainability to them. It's a difficult thing for them to do. And they need education. They need financial support. And it, it's really hard to achieve. And then if you get out to places like New Guinea, I mean, it wasn't so long ago when I was going down the border, but, you know, some of the most unexplored parts of New Guinea. It's like Stone Age. And we had tribal groups that were wearing leather and had you know poison poison arrow. they didn't have a single metal implement in their village that was just in my lifetime and you try and bring them into the modern world you start talking to poor farmers like that about sustainability and can you clean up your supply chain please they'll probably stick an arrow in you it's very hard to make those transitions and that you can't believe how fast these things have happened over the last few decades in those societies right out there where this stuff is being created for us in our society. 
And of course, companies should do better. And many of them do really badly. And they're just trying to make a buck. And they don't think about this. But it's been a massive change that's happened in this chain reaction. So it's been very hard to get corporations to actually deliver on their zero deforestation commitment. So here you are. They thought they could do it in five years. They've not managed it. And they should be held to account. They should be held to account. So who else should be held to account? Well, what about the people who own shares in those companies? The financiers who are putting all the money into Unilever or into any other of these companies. And I have to say, Unilever's tried harder than anybody else to do this. And uh, I salute Paul Polman for what he tried to do. What about pension funds who own shares? What about banks who lend them money? Aren't they responsible too? So what do we do about them? Well, of course, how many financial institutions actually have a zero deforestation policy? Well, a few years ago, I can tell you, it's very simple. One, it's called BNP Paribas. It's a massive French bank. It was the only one that had a zero deforestation policy across all its uh, the big four that I talked about. How do I know that? Well, a few years ago, I thought it'd be interesting to set up a rainforest rating agency because banks like to see rankings. They like to see who's doing well, who's doing bad. Investors like that too. So of all these companies involved, we discovered, this is my, my research group in Oxford called Global Canopy, uh, that I, I, I used to run, I don't anymore, um, but I found it 18 years ago. We call it the Forest 500, like the Fortune 500. The 500 biggest entities in the deforestation economy. Who are they? 150 investors and banks, and also the rest of the companies. And we look at them and rank them on their deforestation policies. Well, do you know what? We can see who's doing well and who's doing badly. And the investors say, well, now we know who's doing well and who's doing badly. That was pretty interesting. And this Forest 500, you can look it up, is a way to rank performance, not only of the companies, but also the investors. Uh, and that's had a really big effect too. Let's just end by talking about campaigning because each one of those, the corporates, the finance, and the campaigning is worth a podcast all in its own. So I'm trying to introduce these subjects to you and maybe we'll get back to some of the detail in each of those in later podcasts. Let's talk about campaigns. A really interesting campaign that I got involved with just a, a couple of years ago was called the Rangtang campaign. Some of you might remember Rangtang. Rangtang was a video that was made, promoted by Greenpeace. And it was about a little baby orangutan uh, that came to live with a little girl in her home. And this baby orangutan, he starts messing around in her, her room, her bedroom, actually. She's sitting in there and he starts knocking over all her stuff and everything. And, and he, he finds a shampoo, the girl's shampoo bottle and it's got palm on it. So he throws it away and, he, and the girl gets really cross and says, look, hang on, why don't you go back home, orangutan? And it's all done by a, a wonderful poetry, a sort of Dr. Seuss kind of treatment. And the little orangutan turns in the doorway and looks at her with a weepy eye and says, but I haven't got any home to go to. And then the video becomes very dark. And you know, that video started here in Jersey, the little island I live on, with a guy called Paul Sykes, who's a friend of mine. And uh, he got together with John Soven uh, of Greenpeace. And we cooked this up, this idea, let's do a big campaign on palm oil that sort of highlights how important it is to stop deforestation being part of the palm oil story. There's nothing wrong with palm oil. It's a brilliant product, but you shouldn't grow it by deforesting. So that's what we wanted to explain to people. 
And it resulted in a kind of Disney cartoon, which is utterly brilliant. Well, nobody knew that it would become so big. A supermarket in Britain called Iceland said, well, can I use this for my Christmas campaign? Well, that got banned. The video was banned. The public went mental. They said, hang on, you mean to say at Christmas you're going to adverts for burgers and consumption, but you can't have an advert for conservation? And so it went viral. Do you know, 80 million people have downloaded that video around the world, and 8 million of them have actually done something. 1.2 million signed up to Greenpeace's campaign. It's astonishing how that happened and went around the world. So campaigns can be really good, too, in trying to change this chain reaction that results in the destruction of nature. But you know, something strange, just to end on, is also happening. I was in New York in January. I was trying to get some breakfast. I was, living in a bit, I was in a bit of a crummy part of town. I was going to a big conference on conservation finance, actually sponsored by Credit Suisse. I went into Dunkin' Donuts. I've never been into Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, I thought, I'd get a donut and a coffee. What did I end up having? A burger. I didn't even know Dunkin' Donuts sold burgers. But this burger was unlike any that I'd ever had before in my life because it was a Beyond Meat burger. It didn't contain any meat. And these companies are now really growing fast. In fact, it was a Credit Suisse that brought Beyond Meat to the market. It's gone ballistic in the last 18 months because they're making burgers without meat. And there are others who are growing meat in a Petri dish that uh, can actually take stem cells and create new kind of meats. So uh, the other thing is that we should all eat less meat so they're creating burgers with no meat. And then veganism is growing incredibly fast because we should all become vegetarians, they say. And, and it's ultimately, we've got to change what we eat. And they're right. And so the rise of veganism is astonishing to see. And the finance world is watching this like a hawk because they see new businesses. And it's going to be highly disruptive to this whole supply chain I've been talking about, which is trying to feed the world. We're going to have to feed the world in a different way in the future. So I started my story with eating, you know, caterpillars on a stick. So one of the things we might have to get used to in the future is eating insects. And this is not a small thing, because guess what? Insects love eating waste. And one of them, called the black soldier fly, is uh, an absolute expert at eating palm oil waste. So all that problem with the palm oil industry, leaving all its waste kernels that you squeeze to get the palm oil out, what do you do with that? Well, guess what? You can stick maggots on it, and they love it. And you can then turn those maggots into a protein source that you can feed fish or even create burgers for us. So goodness me, isn't that going to be different in our supply chain in the future? My name is Andrew Mitchell, and you've been listening to Don't Mess With Nature podcast series where we have a look at how to get a better balance between nature and money.